1: That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
2: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the fabulous Feinstein's 54 Below. Before we get started this evening, just a polite reminder. Please take this moment to silence your cell phones. Also, there is no flash photography, please. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Try to catch our ride, show something that we haven't seen. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Find Science 54 Below podcast. We are bringing you behind the scenes at Broadway Supper Club, and I'm Nella Vera, the director of marketing. Joining us today, we have Matt Dehan and Kelly Lynn D'Angelo, writers of the emotional and explosive pop rock musical, Starry, about brothers Vincent and Theo Van Gogh. Following a sold-out engagement with us in 2019 and coming off their Edinburgh Fringe Festival concert series, Matt and Kelly returned to Feinstein's 54 Below with a song cycle presentation of Starry. Matt and Kelly, welcome.
0: I'm Matt Dehan.
2: I'm Kelly Lynn D'Angelo.
0: And you are listening to the Feinstein's 54, 54 Below podcast. podcast. Thank Hi. you so much for having us. Hi.
2: I guess my first question is, how long have you been working together and how, how did you meet
0: Oh boy! So <laughs>
2: it's a good story, actually. The, the story
0: of how we met is yeah very well traveled at this point. It's um, I was helping a friend of mine move in to her new house in Los Angeles, in 2014. So yes, it's been quite some time. And I was moving some pictures out of the moving van, and one of them was a framed print of a Vincent Van Gogh uh, piece called Almond Blossoms. And I went to my friend, whose name was Mary. I'm like, Mary, like, you have great taste in art. I didn't know that you were a fan of Vincent Van Gogh. And she's like, oh, no, that's my roommate, Kelly. And I didn't know Kelly at the time. So I bring the the work into her room. And, and then um, I
1: go over to him, and I'm like looking at the painting. And I'm like, oh, you like almond blossom? And he's like, yeah, I love Vincent Van Gogh. And I was like, how funny is this? I wrote my thesis on him in college, and I'm obsessed with his story. I'm writing a musical about him right now. And then he turns to me, and he goes,
0: I'm doing it too. (laughs) And we, yeah,
1: and then we looked at one another over this painting and I was like, do you want to write it together?
2: And (laughs) he just looks at me and he goes, yeah. I'm like, Um, why not? (laughs)
1: Let's go. That's so crazy, (laughs) but what if
2: they had been radically different? (laughs) It it was the wildest thing. We compared
1: outlines because it's an idea that I came, I started to bring into fruition when I was about 18 years old because I had a different book and we worked on another musical together which is a, and adaptation of the kind of Monte Cristo. So that was like our first project together. So at that point, I had already written the book when I was 18. And I was like, OK, next project for myself. Oh, sorry. And so I started to write the outline. And then we compared them. And they were the same story, the same five years, the wow. same focus on Vincent and Theo in Paris and Montmartre. It was wild.
0: Yeah. Wow. Just exactly the same beats, the same everything in the outlines. And I was already starting to brainstorm ideas for music. Once we started combining our two outlines, it was like, well, there's a show here. And Amazing. Show.
2: Do you write the music and you write the book and lyrics or how, do, how does it work?
0: I, uh, I write the music mm-hmm. and Cal writes the book and together we combine on the lyrics.
2: I love it. I love, I'm fascinated by how people get inspiration for shows and this is probably the most unique <laughs> way that people have been inspired. What is it? Why a musical about Van Gogh, post-impressionist artist? <laughs> I, I feel, and I think we both do, that so many people
1: know the name. When you, when you say, I love, I love going up to people and saying, have you heard of Vincent Van Gogh? And they say, yeah. And I say, what do you know about him? And they'll say, you know, I, you know he cut off his own ear and he painted that thing the Starry Night. Um, sometimes they'll know he was in a yellow house. Sometimes they'll know a couple other details, but generally speaking, I'm like, "Do you know that he never sold a painting in his life?" At least that's what people say, and they go, "Yeah, yeah. I guess he, you know, I knew he wasn't really big when he was around." And I said, "Well, how do you think he became who he was?" And that's really where like the discussion begins. Is really about the story behind the man and the reason why his work is so transcendental, and it. It still sparks conversations today. I like to think he's kind of somebody who sits and sat at the precipice of the material world into the emotional world. He was the access point for artists. He defined modern day artistry. So it's a really interesting story to tell.
0: Yeah, and the story just sings. When, you know how people say that about certain stories that you pick something up. If you if you're going to turn into a musical, it needs to sing to you. And the story of Vincent and Theo and you know, the whole gang there in Montmartre, it's just sang to both of us. And deep down, be, even beyond the core of it being about an artist and creating art, some of the most famous art in the world, it's a story about family, it's a story about friends. And once you break it down to that level, it became so relatable and so moving. Yeah, just the story of how these two brothers, even though they both died very young, how did their story persevere? that introduced us to an incredible woman named Joanna, who was the wife of Theo. (laughs) And it was, uh, she kind of carried on this story and this legacy. And this remarkable woman, she sang. You know, she needed to have a story, her story be told. Because no one really knows about her at all.
1: No, and it's it's, it's all the letters, the compilation, the person who created Mm -hmm. modern-day artistry wasn't just Vincent. It was really, it's really Theo's wife, Joanna, who, again... She alone defined that. Let Love defined that. Her passion for the story defined that. It's, as an art history major, as somebody who loves the history part of art and not something, I, I don't like looking at it and only object. like, there's an objectiveness that's required, not a subjectiveness. And I think that we get to bring a conversation and make things emotional again. Kids walk through museums and they pass by and they just don't look twice and people don't understand the stories but now we're getting these beautiful beautiful essays from kids who are so excited to learn and study and it's because we're making it alive again we're making these are real people so it's it's exciting (laughs) we
0: didn't just want it to be a story about some crusty old painters that you read about in a history book it's a when you look at it objectively this was such an explosive and imaginative time in human history Everything was being questioned from, you know, science to faith to art, and this was the hub of that universe, and that's where we find our characters, and that is just so much fun to write about and sing about.
1: And it was kind of, I like to think of it as like a rebirth in some ways, or more like a, instead of renaissance, sometimes I say naissance, it's -hmm. just a birth. Because it was 20 years of lack of war. There were people who were able to generate ideas. There were philosophers coming out. It was this really formative time where people were starting to think. You know, we were all moving forward and progressing, but suddenly people could breathe because they weren't consistently serving in different sort of wars. And suddenly the head started to grow, and people started to try to think about what was next and what else could we do. And a lot of people were grasping and grabbing in different corners. And Vincent found this little nook, And it's really fascinating how he became kind of the pinnacle
2: of artistry. It's an exciting story. (laughs) I love the story so much. I love the idea of the letters and bringing Joanna to life. And and the letters, just, you know, that you pour your soul out. I guess because proximity, you're far away from your loved ones, so Mm. you don't have any other way of communicating. But when you read some of the letters, they're so moving and so detailed um you know just a biography in itself yeah yeah Yeah, and she translated it four different languages over the course of her life
1: that book took her years to compile um she was so brilliant she was so smart yeah we can't gush over joe she was (laughs) (laughs) she is
0: she is the best
1: i get chills i just got a big chill thinking about how magnificent she was and to think about how she adapted them and how she compiled it and put it together and started to create the gallery on her own as a widow with a newborn. It's its such a... Uh, we have taken so many steps. It's been such a delicate process because we care so deeply about staying true to the like fundamental emotion of these brothers. And those letters are so rich and they're so raw and they're so animated and detailed that... I think we've tried in every corner of this musical to really pay homage to the legacy. Yeah,
0: yeah and For- we're so fortunate to have these letters. Mm-hmm. I oh. mean, without them, we wouldn't have this kind of window into it. Because he was not a c- huge, critically acclaimed artist at the time. So the only way you could get this window into their lives, their relationships, their everything, were these letters. Yeah, And Joe was the big reason why we have this, and without that, we wouldn't be here having this conversation.
2: For people who maybe are not as familiar with Van Gogh's life, this idea of focusing the show on the brothers—can you talk a little bit about why a story about Vincent Van Gogh can't be told without Theo? <laughs> oh
0: man, yeah, this is—it uh...
1: should never be. <laughs> I, I think that on every placard, I think everybody should know who's like. Well, it. we've
2: seen projects yeah. where they mm. they. Tell Gauguin and Van Gogh, and you're like, but you know, it seems like something's missing yeah, here. Yep. Oh, yes. it so is. So, I wonder, you know, if you can tell our listeners what what was going on in that relationship and why it was, you know, they're so intertwined, these brothers.
0: Okay, well, the word that I like to use, the phrase that I like to use to describe those two, is a binary system. One literally could not live without the other. Uh, Vincent was not super duper close with a lot of his family. Theo was the one who really gave him the support, gave him the love financially. And he just gave him the opportunity to be the person that he became. Didn't always understand him a hundred billion percent, but just like any siblings, you know, they love each other and they support each other. And, uh, it's a, it's a binary system because they just could not have been much more different. <laughs> and, and Theo was
1: such an interesting person. Like He was an artist, too. Yeah. Well, and he did do artistry when he was younger. But from the age of like 14 and 15, they had an uncle, Uncle Scent, who um, oversaw this art gallery in Paris. So from a young age, the boys would go to Paris and they would tour the galleries and see all this beautiful art. And they were so focused on their family. Their father was a, a pastor and so, um, or a priest. And they would spend all this time together. Um, and the family would do painting, and they would they would talk and listen to music, and they spent quality family time together every Sunday. So family was so important. But from a young age, Vincent was consistently in the shadow of other family members. It, for better lack of terms, there was a pretty dark moment in his past when there was another child born stillbirth named Vincent, and so he always felt like he was in the shadow of this firstborn. And it's a really beautiful and tragic upbringing, uh, but. Theo always saw beyond that. He always looked up to his older brother, as eccentric as he was, as wild as he was. His philosophy, like, his philosophy was explosive. He wanted to be a priest like his father. And so he would... St- go around town and shout all these ideas and come up with all of these different ways to look at life and again that kind of put him as an outcast but Theo just loved him so deeply so when the, by the time Theo was uh, 17 he had already moved to Paris he had he had been resolved by the time he was 14 to become an art dealer just like his uncle sent and he was the youngest person ever in the history of Google and Art gallery which was around for about 50 years the youngest one to join they said, yes, this kid really wants it. So by the age of 17, he started working and selling art. And then within 10 years, right around the time that Vincent finally resolved himself after going through so many different career paths, um, decided, you know, when he was like in his 30s, oh, I think I you know formally want to re- create. And I tried like 14 other things and now I want to be a painter. Uh, Theo was so supportive of that but also very hesitant in certain ways where he wanted to make sure that Vincent had all of the tools and assets needed. But financially, it's really where he supported him the most because he was so successful by the time he was 27. I could talk all day about this. I have like like an autobiography (laughs) in my brain. It's great.
2: I love it. I love (laughs) that story. I love just everything about his life. I also love reading about, he almost, especially, I'm talking about Vincent here, there's like an innocence to him. And I I guess it has to do with the way he looks at life and also physically looks at things. You know, you always wonder, Picasso, that's what he sees. You know, he sees women in these outline forms. and, And when you look at Van Gogh, you know, you see this is, you know, he's looking at these explosion of colors and the beauty that lies. You know, he's not looking at it with an eye like we are looking at it. And I've always been fascinated by that you know, by artists, and when you read about him and some of the letters, there's such an innocence yeah. and an optimism which you don't expect from somebody who was so chronically depressed and obviously suffering from some mental health issues. But there's still an innocence where he describes things that are beautiful, and it, I find that so beautiful and heartbreaking, but beautiful. Um, and you understand why his paintings make people so happy. Well, the ones that are not, you know, self portraits, but yeah. <laughs> so well, I love that's that.
0: That's his power of expression. I mean, he'd, uh, he always tried to paint what he felt, you know, not just a true image of something. He saw it with his emotions and he translated that onto the canvas. And that's why everyone has such vis- visceral, reactions to his work because yeah. it provokes our feelings too. And that was one of his gifts, was the ability to make us feel through his work and I just yeah that's I, I feel very deeply every time I see something of his and that was his power to take you know often so, such immense pain yeah. and turn it into this beauty that we can all understand and enjoy
1: even and that, today. That like requires that childlike innocence. It does. That, that sort of rawness and willingness I think that people nowadays get so caught up in pleasing other people. He wanted to make other he wanted success but he looked inward oftentimes and then gave what was inside of himself outwardly instead of back in the day all of that artwork was done and it was very regiment it was like you painted a handful of certain topics and that was it and for him to start to explore and ask questions that was a child that's like a child saying why mm-hmm. where what how and he didn't shy away from it. He only leaned into it further. And I really think that the reason, and I think we tackled this in the story a little bit, I always feel like when people look at Vincent, they always say he's the crazy one, he's the mad one. And he has this beautiful letter that really is a big focus of us about being feeling like a caged bird. And it's the most beautiful letter that he wrote to Theo. And how he used to pass this, this caged bird all the time and he could hear it singing and it should be happy because it has everything it needs, but you can just hear it in its song I wanna be free. And nowadays people do that to him still. They look at him as a caged bird. And we want to reverse that. We're trying to set him free mm-hmm. through this. Because yeah. it he is so much more than, than the guy who all of up his Yeah, Ill- mm-hmm. and who even knows how that all yeah. happened. There's a lot of subtext, and we want to leave that up to discussion and people's Mm -hmm. own personal interpretation. But his freedom—that's all he ever wanted. And I think that we really tried to emotionally capture that through song. We've been working on this for about a little over three years now, right around that, and And it's really accelerating because the story again—we're workshopping all the time. It's really come to a beautiful place now, and we found something that I think was always there that was—it was so hard to articulate. Someone would ask, "Well, what's it about?" And I'm like, well, it's, it's really about two brothers finding the power of expression. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Like, what do they want? So is, do they want to sell a painting? And it's like, no, it's not a material thing. It's about two people finding the power of expression. And really what that story is, really what we're trying to tell is the story of unconditional love. How, how do you express, how do you find unconditional love in somebody else enough that it transcends time? Look at where we are. Even though they died young and they never got to
2: see and reap what was sown, mm-hmm. it, it was sown. Yeah. So
0: we're still feeling that love today, yeah. and so the you, love brought us all together.
2: You mentioned that it's you, you're in a good spot now, so where is the project right in, now in terms of its development?
0: Oh, man, so this is probably, what, the sixth version of the show yeah, that we there's have? There's a lot of versions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, we just recently released a concept recording of uh, the big songs from the show. And man. it's
2: going viral, right? <laughs> oh man! Yeah. We, we,
1: apparently, it's been out for about three weeks, three and a half weeks now. We have over half a million views five five hundred thousand. He listens Listen. on Spotify. That's it. Five hundred thousand listens on Spotify. That's crazy, insane. insane. That's and we wild. hit we hit number fourteen on the iTunes charts. That That's was cool. And then I, yeah, Billboard contacted me on Facebook. I, cause, what? Because I, again, I yeah. we're just two kids trying to tell <laughs> I don't a story. Really know what's so, happened. like, they I reached mean, out the, to me on Facebook, and they were like, "You might yeah. top on Bill. You might hit the charts on Billboard." We didn't, but that was pretty cool. Yeah, that most we of this did.
0: record was recorded in a room about you know like a, this tiny, tiny room with one microphone, surrounded by blankets. <laughs> like an eight by, by twelve. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so and The fact that incredible. it's reaching so many people is so—it's incredible.
2: Well, for the score is fantastic. Oh, I, I loved that. it. Thank you. It's really good. Every time I have to listen to a musical, I <laughs> pause for a minute and pray that it's good, because you want all your friends and acquaintances, to, you know, to do well. But this was actually fantastic. It's oh. it's boppy, but it's also just there's so much about it to love and the score is fairly contemporary. Yes. So how did you decide what the sound would be? You talked about it singing, the characters and the storylines singing to you. So how did you decide on the sound?
0: Well, it just felt like it felt like modern music to me. I mean, Kelly will tell you that early on in my original outline of oh, this yeah. show. Yeah. I originally thought like, hey, how can I make this, you know, even cooler? How can I make it translate even more? I thought about setting it in present-day Los Angeles. And making all the characters these, you like these like silver yeah. like hipsters yeah mm. like hipstery and yep. like they have the. I was very I inspired can see that. I was yeah. very inspired by <laughs> the downtown LA art scene and I'm like this is such a cool community and every, it, everything was everywhere it was exploding everywhere and the people were incredible and I'm like how cool would it be to set it there that kind of got my brain working on contemporary things because you know these are not crusty old painters back in the day when the story was taking place in the 1800s They were like, you know, 20-somethings, 30-somethings. And during this revolutionary time, it felt like I needed like a rock drum set. I needed electric guitars. I needed... This was the kind of emotion I was feeling.
1: The brothers were all in their late 20s, like the late 20s, early 30s. All these painters were in their late 20s and early 30s, except for Pizarro. We can talk about him another day. But (laughs) but it it was... There's such a... They were such a zeitgeist. Yeah. And I think people often put them in the past and make them older than they actually were. These were young people. Exactly.
0: Just because they're a museum doesn't mean they're these crusty old people. Well, they're, I, think they're it's, in, yeah. I think
1: it's the
2: beards. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, the beards does have something to do with it.
1: And
2: also, you know, there's some things well, m- going around. It's yeah. funny because I went over the summer, I went to Monet's house. Oh, no. uh, in Giverny? Gimbran- no? yeah. Okay. yeah. You know, we were right up on his life and I've always thought of him as this old... <laughs> dude with a long beard with one of those funny hats sitting outside of course he had a totally full crazy life before that full of love affairs and whatever else you know was in (laughs) his life but you always just picture this guy with a straw hat sitting outside with his long white beard and that's uh, that's so true That in, and in that time yeah. and amazing that they were all contemporaries but also makes sense that art yeah. was exploding at that time
0: yeah and they're in the hub of the art world Paris and they're oh. in like the party section of Paris yeah. Montmartre yeah. and that's where like the Moulin Rouge was and that, that's where all the big bars were and that's where everyone went to get inspired and all these like we're not making this up all these yeah. artists are hanging out at these bars together
1: literally where Theo's <laughs> apartment was on the Rue Le you can walk out and Stigatori's was Stigatori's cafe was right across oh so she's one of the characters in of our the, show, yeah. and that's where all the painters <laughs> would hang out yeah so theo lived across the street and that's when so you're crazy a tiny little street it's crazy yeah
0: just oh all these God. famous <laughs> artists that we look back on and we're like it's so wild but they were like all under the same roof a lot yeah and they were all wild and crazy in this crazy part of paris yeah.
1: and that actually translates a little bit back to your when you said yeah. sound
0: yeah. like
1: when we've been trying to find singers it again we've been workshopping for three years it was so funny because like a traditional sound just wasn't mm-hmm. 100% right, but a too modern sound wasn't mm-hmm. right either. So we had to find so many different people that work together with different cadence, like cadences and vibratos and uh, different sort of like mixed belts and rock belts. It's like it's like a combination of rawness meets refineness. We didn't want something too clean. We wanted something that felt authentic.
0: Yeah, it's a story that deserved to be lush, but it also deserved to have that like dirt under your fingernails kind of rock edge to it. Because I felt that that was really true to them at the time. So I just kind of threw it all together in the music.
2: So you're basically translating for the audience what it would feel like. Yeah. At the time, which yeah, is yeah that energy. Yeah. I love that. I saw Oklahoma on Broadway. Mm. And yes, I, loved I did too. It. And yeah. it's interesting because the dream ballet, which a lot of people had opinions about. Oh I loved um, it. I love a good dream uh, well, ballet. you know what? I loved and especially in talking to Daniel about it, when he said that he was trying to recreate what that moment felt like for that audience at the time, but now. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. at the time to put in this long ballet in the middle of a musical was scandalous and people were up in arms about it, but he couldn't put another ballet in. Because it's expected and it's been part of that musical for 40 years or yeah. however long mm-hmm. it's been around. And so he needed to do something that would make this audience feel what that audience felt. And mm-hmm. I think what you're describing is kind of what that feels like to me. You're sort of incorporating the emotional sort of feeling of these artists and the time yeah. and mm-hmm. translating it to what, you know, yeah. what it is now. Because at
0: the end yeah. of the day, I mean, there are artists and they did these crazy, amazing things. But at the end of the day, they were a lot more like us than I think a lot of people think. And, a lot, and part of my score was to kind of draw people into that world and invite them in to a world that they might feel a little excluded from if they just look at, yeah. like, a painting by Vincent or a painting by Gauguin. You know, this makes... I want my goal in a lot of ways is to make them feel like this is one of us. And you're
1: like stepping into the painting and it's inescapable kind of vibe. Like we mm-hmm. we workshopped it at Rockwell Table and Stage in late 2018. So we had eight shows, we sold them all out, which was really exciting. There's not a lot of good selling out, so let's keep that going. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But we, we stepped into this world and it was an immersive environment. And it felt like you were in Psychotorius Cafe because it was kind of like a cafe vibe with table service, kind of like Feinstein's. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but. It's something that I think, like, at Oklahoma, they did such a great job of really making you feel like you were there and everything was everywhere. And I think that's something that this show, you can, like, when you listen to it, when you listen to Matt's brilliant music, you step into it and you can just imagine it all around you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not something that's just
2: viewed like a painting. It's something that's, like, experienced. You mentioned the cast, and we noticed that some of your cast members are Star Kid members. Oh, so, yeah. what made that connection? How, how did you end up with that? Long journey. It's a well, long, I mean, interesting it, road with that.
0: It started very early on with uh, before we even had finished Act One, really. I mean, we wanted to do some concerts to just dip the toe in the water with the songs, make sure they were good, make sure an audience responded. And uh, Kel was showing me a bunch of people. And uh, Jamie Lynn Beatty was a StarKid member. Is a StarKid member, and I didn't know anything about Team StarKid at the time. I, which I is might,
2: maybe I knew a little bit. I only just found out about yeah. them and realized, <laughs> yeah. oh my god,
0: they are the most incredible community of artists and creators and fans and it's so crazy that i didn't know anything about them because now i'm their music director which is oh not. wow
2: yeah. i like I've, okay. I've,
0: I've out in la they're based in la now and oh, i they are? music okay. direct their shows yeah. but well, at they, the time you know we yeah.
2: booked them at yeah. 54 below yeah. and they said oh could we do a week and we we're like oh, a week is for like you know <laughs> yeah. kelly o'hara who can <laughs> we know can sell out and has a fan base and we put their show on sale two performances <laughs> How quickly did we yeah. sell out? Like, we, I don't even want it. <laughs> I mean, I think our it crashed our servers. Yeah. And then we were like, who are these people? And then we realized the power of YouTube. Oh, oh yes. my oh, yes. God. They own And YouTube. now we've added performances. They're still all sold out. We just <laughs> added one more performance on Friday, and that's been sold out. And we're getting sob- Stories and letters from mothers mm-hmm. saying, please, my child, yeah. we're flying out and we didn't get tickets. Or oh. my child is their biggest fan and we got main dining room seats, but we have to have ringside seats. And I'm like, relax. <laughs> it's 24 <laughs> feet it's from the stage to Aww. the back of the venue. Your kid no. is going to be fine. Aww. You will still be able to see the pores on their faces. Like, we're But all, we are it's getting a, It's. I've never it's seen anything like it. It's a, It's another it's like a
1: zeitgeist. It's it's this generation, I'm going to I'm going to say it for myself, of millennials who were actively searching for musical theater that spoke to them. And when they started making stuff in the early you the know, parodies, right? Yeah, when they started making the parodies, it was it was so brilliantly written and so so raw that it was that the I th- perfect storm. Yeah, it was just uh, yeah. what people were looking for at the time. I mean, the, it
0: was the dawn of YouTube and their first, you know, big thing was Very Potter Musical. And they're like, well, we don't have the rights to this. So why don't we just release it (laughs) on YouTube and see what happens? And now look, uh, 11, 12 music, musicals later, they're still going stronger than ever. And you did
2: didn't uh, take it down. No. No, well, it's a parody. So it's, it's, it's a parody. Protected yeah, under it's the, a parody. The Constitution of the United States yeah, of yeah, America. Yeah, yeah,
0: parody law. Thank you. But it's, it's
1: wild because Jamie, Jamie got yeah. involved very early on. And then we needed, at some point, a Vincent. And she uh, I reached out. And she was like, well, I have this, I have these two guys, Jeff and Dylan. And I was like, oh. Yes. Two other amazing (laughs) Star yes. And we brought them in, and then we started workshopping with them in late 2017. And really, since then, they've been involved in different capacities. It's funny, because in early 2017, right around that same time, is when we found Mariah as well. Um, who was in an interesting place where she was moving to uh, do more directing because she's brilliant in so many different ways. Uh, But she started lean again back into our workshop and really started to get involved with Starry. And then Star Kid started working with her and we started working with more Star Kids.
2: And now it's been like this beautiful intersection in dance.
0: Now we can't get away from each other. (laughs) It's amazing.
2: (laughs) You know, I've watched the YouTube videos of them performing and they're really good. You know, good good cast. Mm-hmm. And and I love that they're young because again, <laughs> I was expecting to see some old bearded white bearded <laughs> guy singing uh, yeah. your song, and it's you know a young man in his prime, and you're like okay, you know I know yeah. where it, this show's going, and it, it's kind of awesome. So you've done in addition to Starry, you've both worked on The Count of Monte Cristo stories based in the 1800s in France what draws we you to this time period not that it is isn't a great <laughs> a great period i love the period i'm also i love france and I'm francophile <laughs> but what draws you to this time period
1: oh well Cal, you want to take this one yeah i mean i i love history i have
2: i have i have
1: a cultural anthropology art history degree. like i was obsessed with like 19th century literature. I found the Monte Cristo when I was like in ninth grade, when I was 14, and that's when I started writing the book for my adaptation of the Count, um, simply because after I read the novel, I was just so blown away by the fact that something written by Alexandre Dumas back then could just resonate with me so much. Think the thing that I love the most about writing stories in the past, not to say that we won't tackle other things. they're so grand. And they allowed you to step and create such a beautiful world. And to make something that once felt dead alive, there's, there's such a beauty in that because growing up, I, I really loved school. I really loved learning. I loved growing my mind. I liked reading to make history accessible. I mean, heck, Hamilton just blew yep. it out of the water with that. When I was seven years old. And now six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To Broadway. I, yeah, Six there's just it's all happening now and it's great when I was seven years old my favorite musical in the world I I live in LA I work in TV film I'm a writer right now at Disney which is cool Um, but while I was working (laughs) while I was working out there people you know when you take these big meetings they're always like oh where you know what's your favorite movie and they expect you to say an art film and i say I knew this going to come up i have to mention I it i knew it was going to come up to.
0: it's my, it's most it defines me um,
1: rogers and hammerstein's 1997 version of cinderella featuring brandy as cinderella uh, best thing i've was ever made because i was 7 years old and i saw it and then i saw how the cast was just beautifully colorblind to make worlds based in the past where if it's not race related or sex related, you can remove the barriers of uh, sex and race and just tell a story with anybody who can tell it. I think it's such a beautiful sort of world that you're able to kind of revitalize and make it less stuffy.
2: But also for people who claim that there were no black nuns in Austria or, you know, it's like Dumas was black. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think people don't realize that. And you're like, you know, Norm Lewis, when I interviewed him, said that when people were criticizing that, you know, he was playing uh, Javert and he was, there would be no black policemen. He was like, there was a general who was black and he, and his name was Dumas. So I think that part of it is interesting. Uh, Last question, since we are, Okay. At Time. Um, you're mm-hmm. both based in Los Angeles. You work in film and animation. What are your other projects that you're working on outside of theater, musicals?
0: Oh, man. Well, <laughs> I, right now I'm just all about theater and musicals. I mean, I, as music director for Team Star Kid, I helped uh, get their latest show, Black Friday, on, uh, on stage, which is going to be on YouTube. We, they stay true to their YouTube roots. It's going to be on YouTube on... Uh, the, the Leap Day, the 29th oh, wow. of February. Yep. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Releasing that. And I also produced their their record Yeah. So all of Black their Fire.
1: more recent music. So the music,
0: I'm the, the music guy. I'm their, yes. their toolbox wow. for, for music. That's been taking up all that Such time. Such an empire. It. it you know, it, it's surprising. <laughs> but once you get into the Star Kid ecosystem, it's just all over yeah. the place. And then before we know it, we're, there's going to be another Star Kid show yeah. that they're going to start mm-hmm. uh, putting out there very soon. So I'll be. Jumping into that one and music directing and doing all their sheet music, running rehearsals, all that business. So lots of music directing for me. Great.
1: And then I wrote on Cartoon Network's Mau Mau and stayed tuned for some stuff I did on Nickelodeon. You'll see my name there. And then this beautiful kids' show that I've been working on. I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name yet, but it has been announced in terms of the actual show. So it's called Chicken Squad Season 1. It's a fantastic Chick. show. Oh, wow. It's so cute, and I get to write the lyrics to some of the songs, and mm-hmm. it's, just, it's such a dream to be able to write kids' content. Um, I also do a lot of podcasting, and I do live streaming. I'm a very weird multi-hyphenate and I'm a professional dungeon master so you can what? actually yes amazing I play, I play D&D professionally it's the weirdest world that so, is the
2: craziest <laughs> thing I've um, ever heard I know uh, <laughs> so, uh, <it> is, <laughs> and I love it um it is now it's a genre.
1: um but I am the DM for Girls Gets Glory and I work on I'm one of the players on Sirens in the Realm and I do a bunch of other stuff with D&D so you can always find me in that game space.
2: Amazing. This is so great. Thank you guys so much for joining me. We look forward to seeing starry not just at Fine Science fifty four below, but also hopefully somewhere on stage fully produced very soon. Because it's a great show. So we won't stop until it
0: happens. (laughs) (laughs) I promise you.
2: What happened?